The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. So it uh, gives everybody a chance to focus so we can learn the word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. First John 1 John 1.9 is God's promise that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that means simply that if we admit our sins to God in the privacy of our own priesthood, that because Christ has already paid the penalty, we don't need to add anything to it through emotion, through repentance, through feeling sorry for our sins, remorse, or anything like that. That may be part of it, but that is not what is necessary. The basis for our forgiveness is the completed work of Christ on the cross. And so all we do is follow the procedure of admitting our sins or acknowledging our sins to God. We're instantly restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can advance in our spiritual life, learn and assimilate the Word of God so that it has spiritual value. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the freedom in this nation to gather together as believers, to freely worship you, to study your word, and that we have the freedom to explain your word as it is written without the pressure of governmental threat or of harm or imprisonment. Father, we thank you that we have these freedoms because of those who have served in our nation's armed services throughout the last 200 plus years and that on the basis of their willingness to uh, sacrifice even their lives for the sake of our nation, for the sake of the preservation of freedom, uh, for those men and women who have served, we are indeed grateful. We recognize that the Scripture clearly teaches the principle that freedom is earned and preserved through military victory. And so at this time, on this Veterans Day, we specifically remember those who have served in our armed forces. And we thank you for the freedoms that they have won and preserved for us, that we might continue to freely worship you, to learn your word and advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we just pray now as we study your word that you would help us to understand these things and that our thinking would truly be challenged by the truth of your word and that that even when things that we study run uh, 180 degrees counter to, to maybe what we've learned or what we think is right or or our opinions or background, that we might have the objectivity under the Holy Spirit to, to see the truth of your word and to renovate our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So often, I think, in our nation, we do indeed take for granted the freedoms that we have in our nation. And uh, on Veterans Day, Memorial Day, times like that, Fourth of July, we specifically honor and remember the military because they have... Uh, won and preserved our freedoms. And I don't think that uh, uh, we really understand how much that has changed the way we live as individuals. Uh, you just take some time to travel in a third world country somewhere, or as I did last summer, 
and have uh, on previous occasions gone over to the former Soviet Union and realized just trying to teach basic concepts of of doctrine, things that, that I don't know about today. I think that, that we've lost so much of our Judeo-Christian heritage. It's been uh, legally and wrongly removed from the classroom. You know, one thing that, that you always run into people who say, well, you know, what, what religion do you want taught in the classroom if you don't have uh, allow the uh, faith taught? Uh, some people argue that you shouldn't have faith taught because, you know, you don't want teachers teaching doctrine. Of course, that's true. But, you know, you always teach somebody's values in the classroom. They're either going to be biblical values or they're going to be pagan values. And the question is, <clears throat> whose values are going to be taught? And the idea that because the Supreme Court has removed uh, the mention of God or any, uh, any mention of prayer from the classroom is a tragedy in our nation because it, has, it is both a result and a contributing factor of the ongoing paganization of our nation because people are taught to compartmentalize that they can learn all of these academic disciplines apart from God and that somehow their Christianity or their religious belief is just segmented out here in some other thing. That's what I do on Sunday morning if I do it at all. It apparently isn't relevant to anything else that I do in life, whether my work or my hobbies or, or my academic life. And, uh, and that's a tragedy. But there is some truth in the fact that we wouldn't want just anybody referencing God in the classroom because in a pluralistic society where you have now, and you don't have it so much here, but you go to places that are more urban, you have an increasing number of, of uh, uh, mixed faith, Buddhist, Muslims, uh, whatever in the classroom teaching. So it's an, indeed a crisis that our nation faces because what is at jeopardy is the entire Judeo-Christian heritage uh, that our country was founded upon. And so the average school person today has very little understanding of biblical concepts, which is, which is really sad because it, it impoverishes them intellectually. One can hardly read a 19th century English or American poet or earlier, and even many uh, 20th century poets, without uh, understanding some of the biblical allusions that are present in the literature. I, mean, I was reading just a modern writer the other day, a fiction writer, mystery novel, and uh, there was just the allusion in there to the sufferings of Lot. And I wonder how many people reading that today for a little entertainment would even understand what that allusion was to, because we're not allowed to even teach the Bible as literature in a secular classroom. And that it continues to feed the decline. And when I was over in uh, Kazakhstan this last summer, I realized just how difficult it is to communicate, to teach across that cultural barrier where there is no frame of reference at all for many of the fundamental concepts that all of us understand and hold dear in relation to freedom, in relation to government, in relation to moral absolutes. And when you get into a situation like that, you suddenly realize how deeply indebted we are to a free society where there is a, an open expression and teaching of uh, biblical thought and biblical ideas, and that's what this nation is grounded upon. But as we see today, our nation, our freedoms, are gradually being eroded, and that is because, it's not because, uh, a certain political party or another political party is in power. It's not even due to the failures or successes 
of one or two or a group of individuals who are serving in a political sphere. It is due to the negative volition and apostasy of our nation as a whole. And we see parallels in the book of Judges, which is what we are studying. And we come to Judges chapter 4, and we we are focusing on the concept of leadership because the real subject of the entire midsection of the book from Judges uh, 3, 7 through the end of chapter 17 is all related to the failure of leadership in Israel. And there is a steady decline and deterioration. And the first time this really comes into focus is in this shift into chapter 4. And we begin to see an interesting development in the theme of leadership. We must remember that the writer of Judges is critiquing the society of Israel that existed subsequent to the conquest. He is writing from a historical vantage point several hundred years later, not, not, um, not, probably not more than 300 years later, but he is writing under the kingship of Saul, and he is demonstrating a principle, and that is that the nation had a high level of freedom prior to the uh, kingship. But when there was no physical king in Israel... The people uh, could not handle their freedoms. See, in order to handle freedom, you have to have a sense of responsibility. They go hand in hand. When you have freedom without responsibility, it's the same as freedom without authority because authority and responsibility go hand in hand together. And so uh, what happened was the, the rejection of God as the authority in Israel led to a uh, misunderstanding of the whole principle of leadership and responsibility that went along with that. And so the nation, having rejected God as the king and not having a physical king who would impose a rigid order on the nation, the people deteriorated not only into apostasy but also into uh, spiritual anarchy and moral anarchy. And the theme of Judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They, they rejected the rule of law, which for them was instantiated in the Mosaic law, and each person became a law unto themselves. And we can certainly see parallels to that in our own contemporary culture. And as a result of that, what happens when man in autonomy rejects the absolutes given by God, in his arrogance he seeks to redefine the, the nature of creation. He seeks to redefine social order. He seeks to redefine uh, key concepts uh, such as law, such as authority and leadership. And this begins to have its impact throughout all of society because these things are integral to God's created order. And as we have studied in the last few weeks under the doctrine of leadership, leadership and authority and responsibility were all inaugurated before sin ever entered into human experience. So it is not something that God put man or put into the created order or put into human society in order to control sin. It was there beforehand that man as a creature needs to function within the framework of leadership, authority, and responsibility, and that was all part of the first divine institution. And once paganism, which I define very technically as non-biblical thinking. 
and all of us, everybody here has a certain degree of pagan thinking in their soul because we have been uh, brought up in a pagan society. We have uh, inculcated pagan values through the movies we watch, through the literature we read, through the uh, we're influenced even through the art that we appreciate and enjoy and through the music we listen to. All of that is, are expressions of the overall cultural uh, worldview, which is expressed in the Bible in terms of worldliness. It's from the Greek word cosmos, which means uh, an orderly system of thinking, and it is, in, uh, it is antithetical to everything that God teaches. So we use terms like divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint, paganism versus biblical thinking. Uh, these are all parallel concepts. So the Word of God clearly expresses God's view on human society and human relationships and how they should be ordered because they were built in, in by virtue of the way he created us and in the initial creation prior to, prior to any sin. And we are going to focus on some of these problems this morning, specifically in Judges, because this chapter is at the uh, well, it's, if not at the heart of a contemporary crisis, it is certainly used as a source of support for a pagan concept in a contemporary uh, situation or contemporary crisis. So we need to look at this in some detail and fit that into a contemporary setting. First, let's look at the first four verses. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was the previous judge. The use of the word Lord in uh, all caps indicates that this is talking about Yahweh. Y-H-W-H is the tetragrammaton, the sacred personal name of God in the Old Testament. And it's always associated with the Mosaic Covenant that God initiated between himself and the Jews and gave, and gave the law to Israel at Mount Sinai, mediated through angels, given to Moses. So whenever you see this, there is something hidden, or not hidden, but there is something in the background that it reminds us that God has entered into a legal contractual relationship with Israel and that that is at stake. And so they have violated that. Notice that evil is defined contextually in terms of an absolute. It is not a relative. Evil is not determined by social consensus. The majority rule does not determine what is right and what is wrong. There is no elite in society that comes along and determines what is right and wrong. There are absolutes, and those are grounded in the person and character of God. And so evil is always defined in terms of the absolutes of God. So the sons of Israel, that is, uh, the, the Jews, again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and in context we have seen that what this means is that they have gone into uh, the idolatry of the Canaanites. They have gotten involved again in this third cycle with the idolatry of Baal worship, which was the ancient fertility religions all associated with the phallic cult, and is comparable to today's uh, health and wealth gospel, the prosperity thinking of modern society that is driven by a materialistic lust because what under, undergirded the entire fertility worship in the ancient world was, it's a, was it's a, since it was an agricultural society, the idea was that somehow I'm going to manipulate and massage the gods so that they will give me uh, good crops and I will have a success every year, plenty of food and extra money, and I will be a, have prosperity. 
So it was just the ancient form of the prosperity type of thinking that is prevalent today, both in a secular world and has infiltrated Christianity under many forms, mostly within the charismatic camp. Now, verse 2 says, the Lord sold them. And once again, I want to remind you that when we looked at this in its context of back in Judges 3 in the, in the first cycle, that the word for sold in the Hebrew is the same word used for selling someone into slavery. And back there, we saw that the comment several times by the writer of Judges was that the Jews served the Baalim and the Asherah. And that's, that word for serve is also a word for slavery. Once you give yourselves over to sin, you become a slave in your thinking. And this is the same point that Paul explains so vividly in Romans chapter 6, and that is that as a believer you are either serving the sin nature or you are serving you are a servant of righteousness. There's no neutrality, there's no middle line. And that when we sin as a believer, we immediately make ourselves slaves of the sin nature. But the unbeliever is born a slave of the sin nature. This was the point that Jesus was making to the Pharisees in his encounter in John 8. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they said, but we're children of Abraham. We're already free. But they, 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 were, so, they were in such arrogance that the Pharisees didn't realize that they were not only enslaved to their legalistic observation, but they were enslaved to the Roman Empire. Uh, they were enslaved to their sin nature. And Jesus was talking about the fact that it's only on the basis of truth that you can be, break the bonds of slavery to the sin nature. And that begins at the cross by putting your faith alone in Christ alone because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And that's Paul's argument in the first four verses of Romans chapter 6. And there he states that because we have been identified as believers with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then that autocratic bondage, that tyranny of the sin nature, those chains have been broken. But you see, what happens in a pagan society is that the vast majority of the citizens of that culture are sinners. They are, they are not just sinners, they are unbelievers, and they are all in bondage to the sin nature. So what happens in any culture, whether it's 17th century America or 20th century America, remember we're still in the 20th century, just wanted to see if everybody was awake this morning, doesn't change for another couple of months, but the point is that, that they are, whether it's now or, or an earlier society, there's always a certain percentage of unbelievers. But what happens is when you have a certain critical mass of believers who are operating on doctrine, they have not only broken the bondage of the sin nature positionally at salvation, but as they pursue spiritual growth, they are developing the thinking of free people. They are understanding the principle of Galatians 5.1 that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so they can have real freedom in the soul, and you can't have freedom in a political environment or a social environment or a family environment or any environment whatever if you don't have capacity for freedom in the soul. And so freedom essentially is a spiritual issue. It is not a political issue, and it is not necessarily a a military issue. Those are merely symptoms of the underlying condition. Now, in the Old Testament in Israel, what you had was a term called the remnant. And when there was a, the remnant was of sufficient size, and that refers to the believers who are advancing to spiritual maturity in the Old Testament, 
then there was freedom and prosperity in the nation, even though there might be 50, 60, 70 percent of the nation might all be involved in paganism, there was a large enough remnant that by virtue of their uh, spiritual growth, there was blessing by association for the remainder of the nation. Now, in the New Testament, you have a similar concept and one which we call a pivot because a pivot is that fulcrum upon which the issues turn. And the pivot in the New Testament, it's also a military concept that, that on a line of protection or a defensive line or an offensive line, it may, it may even happen in football as well, there is one person or one, one place that the entire movement shifts or turns, and when that pivot breaks down, then everything breaks down. And so we use the term pivot because we're not a theocracy in the New Testament the church age, there is not a remnant concept because that is specifically related to an Old Testament concept. But there is still the principle that as goes the believer, so goes the nation, and there is blessing by association in any nation when there is a certain critical mass of positive believers who are advancing to spiritual maturity. And they are going to impact their culture in a number of ways, but it begins spiritually. It doesn't begin with how they go and vote at the voting booth, although eventually that will be impacted as they go through uh, spiritual reformation, as their mind is renovated. Eventually that means that they're going to start looking at all of the issues that, that come up before uh, government, issues involving taxation, legislation, business, economics. They're going to learn to think about those things in biblical terms and not just in terms of the culture surrounding them, and they will find themselves more and more at odds with the culture around them when that culture plunges deeper and deeper into paganism. And the result eventually is that when you get a culture where, where it is 99.9% pagan and only 0.1% or less uh, advancing believer, there will be head-on clashes. And it will start getting pretty nasty because the uh, d difference between the way a believer thinks and the way the culture around him thinks is going to be so antithetical that the unbelievers are going to be both convicted and challenged by the believer and react in arrogance, thinking they're self-righteous, but that the believer will no longer be able to just accept or tolerate certain conditions and situations within that culture around them, and so there will be harsh clashes, and that is eventually, I think, where our whole country is headed unless there is a shift in terms of positive volition. Uh, paganism is a very subtle sort of disease, if we might use that analogy. It's more than a disease, really, because it comes from the sin nature. It's a constitutional problem. But we'll use the analogy of a disease. And that any disease, for example, some of you have already enjoyed this season's bout with the flu. Others of you have that thrill to look forward to. But despite which, you know, the, the, your situation, you know that when you start getting sick, some of you will manifest certain symptoms. Others of you will have the same disease and manifest other symptoms. So just because you have the flu doesn't mean that you're going to to necessarily manifest every single system, uh, every single symptom. It's going to be different. So you can have paganism in Africa, and it will manifest itself with certain sy symptoms. 
You can have paganism in uh, ancient Greece, and that manifested itself differently, but there were certain similarities and parallels. You can have paganism in Asia, and that is going to be different from that in Africa or in Western Europe, but it will still have certain similarities and parallels, and there, but yet the symptoms may differ. And so when I start talking about symptoms, certain symptoms, I'm not necessarily saying that some of those things are uh, evil in and of themselves. They are simply manifestations of a culture's orientation away from, away from God. Now, all of this is by way of just introduction to help you understand, give you some framework for what we are going to address in ju- ju- these first four verses of Judges. So the Israelites, because by virtue of the fact that they have started serving, enslaving themselves to their sin nature, and this is exemplified in idolatry and rejection of God, that God in turn sells them to military conquest. Verse 2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatsor. This is up in the north of the land. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had, that is Sisera, had 900 iron chariots. Just a little side point. But the Jews did not have iron at this time because apparently there was a, a bit of a uh, a policy by the surrounding Canaanite nations to keep Israel disarmed. Sort of has a modern ring to it, the whole concept of disarmament and the way in which you exercise tyranny over the citizens in a nation or over surrounding nations is to prevent them from having the latest technological weaponry for personal protection. See, this means that, uh, granted, there are many problems with, that, that may ensue from people in a, in a society having uh, access, free and easy access, to Uzi submachine guns. But the criminal element also always has access to the latest technology, and when you prevent the everyday citizen from having access to that technology, then what you are saying is that you're putting them in a position where they can become tyrannized by those who do have access to that Late, the latest technology. That happens not only within a nation, but outside of a nation. When a na- another nation does, our, our nation does not have uh, a strong military, does not have and access the latest technological advances for weaponry, then they will be subservient to whoever does. This is why it is necessary for a nation to preserve its integrity and to preserve its freedom that it must have a strong army that has the latest technological advances. You don't go through disarmament. You don't sit around like we've done the last seven or eight years and say, well, since the Cold War is over, we can stop spending money on military weaponry. Because we, what's happened is we don't just have one enemy now. We have a whole number of enemies ranged against us who are committing acts of war that we're afraid to call acts of war, such as the attack on the coal recently. And the result of that is that we become weaker and weaker as a nation. And in fact, the, the, the term I would use is that we become more and more effeminate as a nation. And I use that word specifically because of the underlying themes that are going on in this particular passage. Now, immediately, if you're here and you don't have a uh, biblical frame of reference, you immediately are vibrating in your seat because uh, you've, been, you've absorbed a lot of uh, 
modern or postmodern thought about the roles of men and women. And uh, if you're vibrating already well, uh, I apologize. You're really going to be vibrating before we're done. Because what the, all of Judges indicates is that part of paganism is that there is man on his own starts to redefine roles and sex roles and the role of men and of women. And what happens in a pagan environment is that there is a rise of effeminacy and this is marked up, and there's a rise of masculinity in women. So that men fail to exercise their God-given roles and responsibilities as leaders and women step into the gap. Now, the interesting thing is that in this passage, there's no condemnation whatsoever on Deborah for filling the gap. All of the condemnation is on uh, Barak because he fails to fulfill his role of leadership. And we come to uh, the end of verse 3 says, He oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. And then verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Now, by way of introduction, I just want to point out a couple of things that we see in these first four verses. First of all, the cause of their collapse and their military oppression is their spiritual rejection of the authority of God in the life of the nation. The cause is not political, it's not military, it's not because they had bad military policy or they had a poor armament policy, but they had an ultimate spiritual problem. Now, the spiritual problem affected the way they looked at life, so that affects and changes their decision-making and policy-making and procedure-making. That's exactly what happens in our nation. The more we become uh, subject to pagan ways of looking at things, the more that is going to affect the policies of our nation and the politics of our nation because they are going to start look at, looking at things from a skewed view of reality. So the result of spiritual rejection of the authority of God, point number two, the result is spiritual slavery, which produces a slave mentality, which ultimately results in national enslavement. And a slave mentality is such that you expect someone else to take care of you. Someone else is going to provide security for you. Someone else is going to take the responsibility for taking care of you in your senior year. Someone else is going to take responsibility for your medical bill. Someone else is going to take responsibility for your happiness. Someone else is going to take responsibility when you are engaged in any kind of a misfortune so that you can uh, take them to court and you can uh, sue them. And instead of just saying, well, that's the way... Life is, bad things happen, people make mistakes. And when I was growing up, if you were a kid and you were swinging on a swing set, everybody understood there was inherent problems with that. And if you fell off and you cracked your head on the sidewalk, well, that's what happens in life sometimes. People have accidents. But now we sue everybody because we don't want to accept responsibility for living in a dangerous world. It's somebody else's responsibility to take care of us and wrap us in a cocoon of, of uh, safety from uh, cradle to tomb. And that is because that an inherent aspect of paganism is that there, there's, no, uh, there, there's no understanding of life after death. There's no security of salvation, so it's motivated by fear. And we're afraid to get hurt. We're afraid to die, so we're constantly trying to wrap ourselves up in some kind of security system so we'll live longer because... Because once we die, there's either nothing or who knows what's there, but, but I need to stay alive. So, so this, this 
fear motivates everything. And, and all of this is a result of a spiritual enslavement of the soul. And so, as we see in many cases, what we do is people go out, and when they go to the voting booth, they vote on single-issue things. We're driven that way. And, people, and, and the politicians appeal to the voters to vote on a single issue. But that slave mentality... If you went to the polls and you pulled the lever on anybody because of one or two issues, then you're operating like a pagan. We have to operate on principle. And there's a whole framework in Scripture that provides the framework for, um, for judging and evaluating national leadership. And I, I always remember when, the first time I really ran into this was when I was right out of college and I was a teacher... And uh, it was a time when, when teachers weren't paid a whole lot. Teachers have never been paid a whole lot. And in Texas, back then, it, well, they were like thir- they've always been right around 38th or 39th in the nation. But they were something like that. And so one of the, I, I don't even remember who the gubernatorial candidates were, or the parties or anything, but one of the candidates was, was driving hard on this whole issue of we need to raise teachers' salaries. Now, he also had a number of other policies that were, uh, long-range problematic for the state. For one thing, it was going to uh, put the state in debt in order to raise those, those uh, salaries because they, there were some infrastructure, other infrastructural problems. Rather than looking at things holistically, nearly every teacher I knew was going to pull the lever on this one candidate simply because I'm going to get a pay raise. How short-sighted, how self-centered. You know, we never should vote on that basis. You have to vote on what's good for the whole, what's good long-term, what's best, what's sound economic policy, what is sound political policy. You have to go vote on the basis of a framework based on principle, not uh, a framework based on uh, how somebody is going to take care of you uh, personally. And uh, once you get a nation that is going to the polls and pulling the lever on the basis of how the candidates are going to take care of them personally, whether it's providing a prescription drug program or scaring people with Medicare or uh, Medicare tactics or whether, whatever it might be. Uh, it's single issue, driving people to go vote on the basis of single issue, and that is slave mentality, expecting the government to take care of your needs and to be the solution for the problems. So that leads to point three, third observation, the nation that comes into bondage spiritually because of idolatry, uh, that this spiritual failure will manifest itself in terms of national priorities. And those priorities then will dictate policies and decisions. That's how it works. And as a believer, what happens is that kind of goes in reverse. And finally, as you begin to develop a little uh, doctrine in the soul and begin to be able to look at things from a biblical viewpoint, then that begins to shift your personal priority so that God becomes number one in your life and knowledge of Bible doctrine, application of doctrine becomes a number one uh, priority in your life. And that then begins to shape the decisions you make and the policies you set in life. Well, the reverse is true, and when you go into paganism, it affects the policies, the decisions that a nation makes. And so what happens, and uh, we see in our own nation that it has affected policies and decisions in relationship to the military, be motivated by a lot of fear of... Uh, uh, see, once you forget that Jesus Christ is in control of history, 
and that Jesus Christ controls the environment. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, every molecule is held together by Jesus Christ. Once you understand those things, then there is no environmental threat because Jesus Christ is in control and there's nothing any corporation can do that's going to change the ozone layer and wipe out uh, the earth because of... uh, too many hydrofluorocarbons in the upper atmosphere. That's just absolutely absurd. There are always going to be meteorological shifts in the ebb and flow of cooling and warming. But guess what, folks? If you don't have a divine viewpoint framework of flood geology, you can't understand it because these cycles are, are still the after effects of the uh, meteorological consequences of the Noahic flood. But, of course, if you haven't studied that and you've rejected what the Bible says about a worldwide universal flood at the time of Noah, then you don't have a frame of reference and you go into science and you operate on an evolutionary frame of reference, then you're going to, from the get-go, because your frame of reference is wrong, misinterpret the scientific data. And we've always had these changes. You go back to about, what was it, about the 14th or 15th century when the Vikings were sending out their missionaries uh, with uh, Eric the Red and Leif Erikson and others. And if you didn't know that, that's what they were doing. They were involved in mi- foreign missions at the time, and they carried a missionary with them on all of their trips. And when they went out and they came to one particular uh, uh, area, they noticed that it was covered with lush green forests. And uh, they called it Greenland. Now, Greenland today is not covered with lush green forest, so obviously the environment in the 15th, 14th century was a bit warmer up in northern latitudes than it is today. My, my, must have been all of that, that uh, carbon emissions from those, uh, those engines, those diesel engines they had on their, uh, on their Viking war boats. So, you know, we just get, we, we let all these things, like this latest thing that some idiot scientist came up with, that in the next 50 years, the um, uh, average temperature of the earth is going to increase 7 degrees. Well, folks, if that's true, and you really believe that's true, then we better start evacuating all of our cities. Because almost every major city in this country is located within, what is it, about 30 miles of the ocean, And that means that they're all going to be underwater in 50 years. And the fact that that you don't see anybody, you see them using that kind of a study to scare everybody to vote for them for their uh, economic policy, and yet they don't get engaged in serious, um, any kind of serious policy in relationship to moving people shows that, uh, that they really don't even believe their own data. They're just using it as a scare tactic to get people to, uh, to vote for their particular program. So what we see here is the nation that comes into spiritual bondage loses touch with reality and no longer has a frame of reference for evaluating anything. So it changes their perspective on life, which then changes their priorities and their policies. And then the fourth observation is that the only solution to any problem in life is the divine solution. And God has already provided the divine solution here for Israel in a leader by the name of Deborah. A woman. This is unique, and it is the fact that she is a woman is specifically emphasized in the text. Now, the question that we have to ask when we come to this is, is to address a specific problem, and that is to ask the question: What is the significance of Deborah's judgeship in relationship to spiritual leadership? 
throughout the scripture, doesn't it appear like spiritual leadership is vested in the male, not in the female? And yet here God is, seems to be giving spiritual leadership to Deborah. Furthermore, Deborah's judgeship is frequently used as support in a contemporary argument for uh, the view that women should be allowed to be pastors and to fill the pulpit. And so this is a major issue today, and if you don't think it is, then that's because you're probably reading uh, the Preston Pipeline and never going beyond that in terms of your uh, awareness of the, uh, uh, of the outer world. One of the, nearly every major denomination, most of the liberals have all fought and lost this battle, and they're all ordaining women. And one of the more conservative denominations down south has made it a plank of their annual platform to uh, take a stand against the ordination of women. As a result of that stand, their state denomination body in the great state of Texas, and it's all their state body's always been a little more wacko liberal than the major denomination, decided this last week that they weren't going to give their state money to the uh, national convention anymore because they were not going to allow women to be ordained. And this is a major issue in many, many situations. And you can see it when you get out and you drive along and you go by some church and they'll say, pastors, you know, Bill and Susie Smith. And uh, that is, is a very subtle way in which they're getting around. Oh, well, it's a team thing. You know, we had the husband and wife. It's a, but it's really a co-pastor, and you're elevating a woman to a position of leadership. And, of course, what happens in the argument and in the debate is there is a uh, turning to different examples in Scripture, Deborah being one of them, that God authorized, elevated a woman to a position of leadership. So why can't we have a woman pastor? And we need to really look at that because it is a major issue that needs to be addressed. So uh, in the last two weeks, as part of our framework for that, I have taken the time to develop the biblical doctrine of leadership. Now, for those of you who have been here, I simply want to review this. Those of you who haven't, don't try to take notes on this. I'm going to fly through this rapidly but I need to bring everybody back to the same sheet of music. Those of you who are, who are new and you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, well, you can pick up a copy of the tape and uh, get these notes down in more detail if you're interested. First of all, I want to move through some of these slides here. Let's just... Uh, we have to remember in the overall structure of judges, that there is a deterioration going on from one cycle to the next. And that means that when we come to these, to evaluate these leaders, we must realize that this is less than the ideal. You can't elevate Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, or Deborah to a position of ideal leadership. And we have to remember that because the theme of the book is negative, it's not positive. So, the doctrine of leadership. First of all, we have to remember that it is uh, related to the divine institution, the first divine institution, which is human responsibility. Responsibility means that a person holds a specific duty, office, or trust. Now, I'm going to relate this to trust, i.e., husbands, fathers, pastors. That's the office we're going to be relating this to. A, a person holds a specific duty, office, or trust, and is answerable and accountable for decisions and actions in relation to that duty, office, and trust. 
So everybody is in, you may wear three or four different hats. You may be a mom, which makes you a parent, so you've got one hat of authority. You may be a wife, which means you wear another hat of subordination. You may be in a position of uh, responsibility at the office, which means you're in another sphere of leadership. And you have to maintain the distinction. The same thing with men. Everybody's in different spheres. Uh, everybody is under authority at some place. But you have to look at what I'm getting at here is when we evaluate this issue, we have to look at the authority in terms of its role and its place within an overall framework. Otherwise, we're going to just get off into all kinds of tangential issues that are unrelated and distractions. Answerable implies that there is someone in authority over the person to whom the responsible party is obligated. So leadership is always going to be related to authority and being answerable to that authority. Second, accountability suggests that there are positive and negative consequences for your decisions in relation to that duty or trust, which is the assigned responsibility. Leadership is going to be in relationship to that sphere of authority. If you're a father, you have a leadership responsibility towards your children. You have a leadership responsibility toward your wife. You have a leadership responsibility in relationship to the spiritual welfare of the home. That leadership entails, because a leader cannot function without authority. You have a leader and you don't give him authority, i.e. if you have a pastor and you don't give that pastor the authority to lead, just forget it. I've been in that situation as a pastor. You can't go anywhere. You have to, leadership demands uh, responsibility and authority to achieve the task. So accountability indicates that there are negative consequences. I want to emphasize that. There are negative consequences for failure in those realms of, of leadership. Third, authority implies a chain of command, but don't think chain of command means impersonal or that it destroys personal relationships. Remember, there is a chain of command in the Godhead, and yet Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The most intimate relationship in the universe has also, is also within the frame of, of a chain of command. So don't think chain of command, military, tyranny, somebody just telling me what to do, bossing me around, that's a false construct. And then obligation means that there is the existence of a formal contract. That is, we always have a, uh, some kind of a, of a uh, uh, covenant with God. In this case, we're operating within the framework of the new, cov- new covenant blessings to the church. And that binds us legally or morally to a certain realm of action. That's why when God comes along and starts telling husbands and wives and pastors what to do, it's always in the context of the relationship with God. Husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, wives are to be submissive to your husbands as, you to, as to the Lord. Pastors are under shepherds. I mean, it doesn't stop with the pastor. The pastor is under the authority of the chief shepherd. Every authority relationship, every leadership relationship is further defined within another authority relationship. So nobody, no human being is at the top of the chain. It always comes back to God, and it always comes back to understanding that Trinitarian relationship. Second, the existence of authority demands the operation of leadership. So if God has given you, delegated to you a certain responsibility as a parent, as a father, as a husband, as a church leader, then that means that you have to exercise leadership within that arena, and the exercise of that leadership is going to be related to properly understanding your biblically defined goal. Because we're going to see leadership means going from point A to point B. 
And you've got to know where point B is. Where does God say you're supposed to be taking those you're leading? Third point we saw was that leadership always operates in the framework of authority. I think I've established that. The fourth point was that authority in the family demands parental leadership. Authority in marriage demands the leadership of the husband. Authority in the military, business, government, church, and other organizations demands the exercise of leadership. So if you have anybody over which you have authority, you need to be leading. Point five, leadership therefore is directed towards the achievement of some responsibility, goal, or obligation placed upon man by God. So whatever the sphere is, you better be defining your, term, your leadership in terms of where God says you're supposed to be going. Sixth, we saw the definition, therefore, of leadership is the authority, ability, and capacity to direct, guide, lead, motivate in any organization to move the members of that organization, i.e. your wife, your family, your, uh, your children, your, uh, uh, the church, whatever, to move the members of that organization to their biblically defined goals. See, for a pastor, my mandate is to move you to spiritual maturity. It's not my job to make the church grow. Jesus says, I will build my church. He told Peter, you feed the sheep. See, what happens today is we have pastors who think somehow God's going to feed the sheep, and my job is to make the church grow. That's called the modern church growth movement, and that's why they have great numbers, because they don't scare anybody away because they don't teach the truth. Everybody can just come together and feel good. But that's another subject. Point seven, leadership, therefore, is related to different goals and responsibilities of the different spheres of responsibility in life. So, different spheres of responsibility, marriage, family, work, church, different spheres of responsibility entail different goals and different leaders. But everybody is in some level of authority relationship. Point eight, crisis occurs when the fulfillment of that obligation becomes challenged or threatened. And we have challenges or threats to our leadership as parents, husbands, uh, moms, all the time. Nine, leadership is then called into play in a special way in the midst of that crisis. And the only way to have stability in the midst of that crisis is through doctrine in your soul. Point ten, it is only doctrine in the soul that provides capacity for objective thinking, real or genuine understanding of the issues in life, and therefore the basis for making good decisions from a position of strength. And that's what lead, ultimately what good, sound, biblical leadership is all about, is making decisions from a position of strength which is defined biblically as under the filling of the Holy Spirit and uh, in accord with Bible doctrine. We're not talking about leadership, some kind of leadership seminar you might go to down at down wherever you work, at Pfizer, some real estate company, or whatever it might be, because they're operating totally within a secular framework. We're bringing in the biblical uh, viewpoint here. In point 11, in contrast, human viewpoint solutions may provide temporary, even long-term, temporary solutions that appear successful. See, the problem we get into as Americans, we love pragmatism. If it works, it must be right. I have 10,000 members in my church and and 5,000 people walk the aisle every Sunday, so what I'm doing must be right. Obviously, God's behind it, right? Wrong. You know, Noah preached for 120 years, didn't have a single convert. That didn't mean God wasn't behind it. You can't judge spiritual things by the the, uh, uh, value system of a pagan society that's operating on numbers as the sign of quality. Point 12, paganism always attacks the divine institutions. This is the point, I, you, we, if we don't get anything else, it's going to attack the divine institution. It's going to attack human responsibility. You're not, re, you're not really, Dad, you're not the one responsible. The mom is. You know, 
She's more sensitive spiritually, so let her teach the kids. That's just human viewpoint hogwash. It's really worse than that, but I'll use that word for this morning. You know, it's the father's responsibility to train up the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's not your job to slough it off onto the mom. The Bible puts the spiritual leadership squarely on the shoulders of the, of the father. And yet what happens in our society, because of paganism, is it's put on the mom. And in my first church, I had people, I had men who'd come and say, you know, I never heard this before. I always thought Christianity was just for women. Because, you know, my dad never went to church. It was just my mom. And, you know, that, that's the idea. And I had, in my first church, which was much more of an interdenominational type of church, uh, we had a real problem because there were a vast number of women there whose husbands didn't come. And see, that's a feminization of the church. And uh, it, it creates this, and it's all a result of just this overall pagan environment that we, that we live and breathe in. Uh, Thirteen, when paganism then alters the concepts of leadership in a culture, it changes the nature of leadership in every sphere. Individual, marriage, family, church, government, and work. And what happens is that you become so, we're, we're, we're all so immersed in this pagan way of thinking that we, we're swimming in it. And we don't even know we're surrounded by it because it just, it's our environment that what happens is that when we make decisions that we think, that think are right and we think they're, they're even biblical, they're wrong because we haven't really completely reformed our thinking. You know, when, when Jephthah sacrificed his daughter, and we'll get there in Judges 10, when Jephthah sacrificed his daughter, thinking it honored God, he wasn't aware that he was doing something wrong because he was so immersed in the pagan thought of his culture. And that's what happens today is because Christians are afraid to delve very deeply into the Word and really challenge their thinking because, because gosh, I might, be, I might have to change everything. I, I might have been wrong all these years. Yeah, you probably were. You know, we all were. That's what the Bible says is we have to renew our thinking. That's the challenge of Christianity. And it's only for the courageous and the brave who are not arrogant. Okay, that sets the context. And um, as usual in this study, I keep setting the context and we can't quite get to the point. Okay. Deborah is a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, judging Israel at the time. Now, what's interesting is the way the Hebrew text sets this up because there's a word left out in the English translation. In the Hebrew, it starts off with, with the phrase, now Deborah. It's what's called the vav disjunctive in the Hebrew, which means that we're setting up a, 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 con, a, a minor contrast between what went before. And so the contrast is between the uh, problem of verses 1 through 3 and the solution of verse 4, which is God's solution. In the Hebrew, the second word after Deborah is the word Isha. This word, Ish, is the word for man. When you put the feminine ending on it, it is the word for woman. In the Garden of Eden, you had the creation in the, up till the end of chapter 3. The man was called Adam, and the woman is called Isha. It is not until after the fall that Adam renames her Chava, uh, which means Eve, the mother of life. So her name initially was Isha. Isha means woman. So it starts off in the Hebrew, now Deborah, a woman. You don't have that in your English. C. 
see, the writer of the Hebrew text is emphasizing. He wants, he wants, now look, this is what I want you to pay attention to here. Is this is a woman. I don't want you to miss the point here that we've got a woman in this leadership position because what he's going to make the point in contrast is because the men don't have the guts to step up to the plate. And that's, that's a, a symbol of what's happening in, in pagan society is there's, in paganism, you always see a move towards matriarchy away from male leadership. So that has a modern ring to it, doesn't it? She is a woman. And then he says, a prophetess. The noun is nevi from the, the root for prophet with a feminine singular ending. She is then called the wife of Lapido. So in one, two, three different words, and then it says was judging, and that's the cow feminine singular participle of Shaphath, which means to judge. You have four words there, all of which are emphasizing the fact that this is a woman. Pay attention. Something different is happening here. We have a woman judging. In all of the other passages, and there's four other passages we'll see, where there is a, a prophetess in the Old Testament, uh, they don't insert that word Isha. This talks about her being a prophetess. But here the writer inserts Isha because he wants us to pay attention to the fact that something unusual is happening here because this is a woman who is functioning in this role, and that is uh, odd or unusual to say the least and is significant to the point that he is making in the text. Now we're told that she's judging. This is a cow participle indicating that, at, that towards the end of this 20-year period, she is already operating in a, in a judging atmosphere. Now, we saw at the beginning of our study of Judges that the word Hebrew word translated judge comes from the root verb shafat, S-H-A-P-H-A-T. And the shofatim, that's the noun form, the judges functioned in a role that wasn't like what we think of as a judge. When we think of a judge, we think of a magistrate who rules in a court and he adjudicates between uh, decisions or he uh, oversees the prosecution of criminals. That was not, let me put it this way, that was not the sole function of a chauffeur team. That was a minor part of the chauffeur team's role, of the judge's role. But it wasn't the whole thing. We've seen that as part of the judge role, they, they also have a military function, their commander, they raised an army, they defeated the enemies of Israel, and they led the nation spiritually. So it's a, it's a broad term, and, and I think the very best meaning for us is their deliverer. It's a deliverer. That's their function is to deliver, and they did it in different ways. And you have to look at each individual case to see how they did it. Now, what's happening here is that we are said that she is a... She is judging Israel at the time and that, that there was a, a palm tree that she would sit under and people would come to her in verse 5 and they would bring various cases to her to make decisions. So that indicates that her role of judgeship is not in terms of military and it's not in terms of spiritual leadership. She is adjudicating in matters of conflict in the nation. And this brings to mind Deuteronomy 17.8 which states that if any case... For God is part of the law, says to Israel, if any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So God has uh, elevated, because of the lack of any alternative, 
Deborah to the position of judge. Now, I'm not taking anything away from Deborah. This is not an, not saying, well, you know, she, she's not operating in an illegitimate manner. God has clearly raised her up and put her in this position. But he's done that because there's no alternative. Remember, at the end of Judges 3.31, God raised up a Gentile uh, by the name of Shamgar, who was a mercenary in Pharaoh's army to defeat the uh, southeastern threat of the Philistines. He's not even a believer. See, because there's a vacuum of leadership, God often utilizes other means to deliver people which are not the standard, not the ideal. This is not to take away from the Shamgar's function of military destruction of those 600 Philistines, and it's not to take away from Deborah's judgeship and her uh, godly character and her spiritual maturity. But it is to recognize the fact that, that the reason God had to go with Uh, both of those leaders was because there was a lack of male leadership in Israel. So the people are coming to her and she is fulfilling her role as a judge. But there's also another interesting uh, description of her here that we have to spend some time looking at. That is the fact that she is called a prophetess. She is called a prophetess. And we have to ask several questions which... I think we'll not get to fully until, well, well, we'll nail them down briefly this morning, but then we'll come back and look at them again next week. What exactly is the role and nature of the prophet? That's the first question. See, the underlying issue is you have some people come along and say, well, prophesying is the same as preaching, so if they could be a prophet, they can be a preacher. Second, what is the authority of the prophet? Third, how many women are there in Scripture who are said to be prophetesses? Fourth, is this a normative role or an unusual role? Fifth, is there something negative about taking about Deborah taking the role of the judge? Those are the questions we need to ask and then come back and ask the last question, what is the implication of this for the role of women in ministry in the church age? That one I think we'll have to save until next time. So the first one, the role and nature of the prophet. role and nature of the prophet is that, first of all, we must distinguish between the office of prophet and the gift of prophecy. The office of prophet does not begin until Samuel. Samuel is still a couple of hundred years away in terms of our chronology. He doesn't come in until the end of the judges period. So the office of prophet is not established But we do have the gift of prophecy, and we know that that goes back to at least Moses, if not earlier. Uh, Even uh, East, uh, even, uh, I can't, name slipped my mind here. Uh, In the Old Testament, the father of, yeah, father of Methuselah. We must distinguish between the office of prophet and the gift of prophecy. The office of prophet does not take a formal position until the time of Samuel. So all that we have here with Deborah is the gift of prophecy. Now, what is the gift of prophecy? The gift of prophecy is merely the reception of divine revelation and the communication of that divine revelation. God gives a certain amount of information to the prophet and then the prophet communicates that to people. In that sense, the uh, prophet is nothing more than a conduit of divine revelation. As Dr. Harold Honer puts it, Prophecy is neither skill, nor aptitude, nor talent. 
It is the actual speaking forth of words given by the Spirit in a particular situation and ceases when the words cease. Now, that's a great definition. Prophecy, therefore, is limited to the articulation of a specific message. And the words are given by God. The precise words. It's not anything more than that. God says, makes a statement, and the prophet comes along and merely repeats what God has told them. Now, that's important. It differs from priesthood in that the function of the priest is to bring people before God. The prophet reveals God's word to man. The priest brings people before God. And no women were ever priests. Also, it differs from teaching in that teaching involves the intelligible exposition, interpretation, and explanation of what the revelation of God means. Therefore, prophecy, the prophet's authority derives from God. God, The authority is that God thus saith the Lord. It's not me. The authority of the teacher is that I'm standing up here teaching you what the Word says and I am explaining it and interpreting it so the authority lies. It's still in the Word, but it's also in my position as a teacher and, and someone in authority. But the prophet is merely a passive mouthpiece to God. The authority does not reside in the gift of prophet. You see that in the New Testament because the gift of prophet was under that of apostle and teacher and the prophet, every prophecy had to be judged on the basis of already canonized scripture. A prophecy, even in the New Testament, did not, was not automatically elevated to the same level of Scripture that had already been revealed. So it has a secondary level of authority. It is not at the same level as an apostle or uh, a pastor or a teacher. So that answers the second question about uh, authority of the prophet, and that is, is, it's not in him, but it's in, in the Word, whereas with the teacher, it's in his office. And there are four women in the Old Testament who are given the gift, who are prophetesses. And there are the sons of Philip and Anna in the New Testament. So this is not a majority function. It seems to be rather unusual, but it doesn't always indicate a leadership crisis. But it does here, because in Isaiah 3.12, God says, O my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. So in that expression, it is clear that the fact that a woman is in a position of rulership indicates that the people are spiritually immature or spiritual failures and that this is not the uh, ideal standard or the biblical standard for leadership. Now, I'm going to come back and I want to say some more things about these and evaluate a little more next time, but that's the opening introduction and next time we're going to look at what the New Testament says about the role of women in ministry with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You that we have Your Word, which is a clear guide. And the Scripture says that it is in Your light that we see light. It is in Your Word that we understand the truth. And as Jesus said, we'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And Father, we pray that we would have the humility to subordinate ourselves to Your teaching, understanding that it is the truth, and that we would be willing to change our thinking in line with it. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. Scripture says that salvation is not based on who we are or what we do. It's not based on moral reformation. It's not based on church membership. It's not based on any other human factor. It is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross, and there He died as our spiritual substitute. He paid the penalty for every single sin that that you or I will ever commit. 
And because he paid that penalty, we have a access to God. And the issue, therefore, is not what we have done, not our sins. They're paid for. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. And that is all that you need to do. So right now where you sit, you can put faith alone in Christ alone. In the privacy of your soul, God the Father knows what you are trusting for your eternal salvation. Father, now we thank you for this time and we pray that we might not forget the things that we have learned, that we might be challenged by them. In Christ's name, amen.